Well, please turn back to John chapter 21. We are doing it in two installments today. I've got the first half and Andrew the second half tonight. Reminds me, when I was around as vicar here, I used to remind people this is the Lord's day and not the Lord's half day. So if, you're, if you want to have the whole thing, you've got to be here again tonight and to get the whole message. But uh, we'll take the first 14 verses and I occasionally do uh, transgress into Andrew's part. He's given permission and I think we should be speaking with the same voice from this great chapter. I think John chapter 21 is the most glorious P.S. in all literature. Now, I, I, you've got to explain what a P.S. is to many people today of a younger generation because we don't write letters anymore. Uh, perhaps you still write letters, but we live in the age of the email and text message. I'm told there's a gospel being written in text message language. Well, I suppose it's just about legitimate to reach the world. I find it very hard to believe it. You do know I've started a society for the preservation of the semicolon. If anybody would like to join me in that, I, I do like the old English grammar. Well, if you actually did write letters, you may remember that if you were very clever, you thought of your punchline before you start and you said it for your PS. It wasn't really a PS, but you know full well they'll read that bit and they'll uh, hold it on. Well, was this John's PS? Just look at the end of chapter 20. Doesn't this look like the end? These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What a wonderful way to end the gospel. And then he starts afterwards. Well, now, whether or not it was a PS, whether it always meant to write John 21, who knows? It's here, and it's part of the inspired literature. Uh, you could argue he wrote John 21 for two reasons. One, to get Peter fully reinstated, and that will uh, be part of tonight's message. Get the Peter uh, who starts being reinstated this morning will be by tonight. Or it's in for a little bit that comes later on in this chapter, all about the rumour that John would not die until Jesus came again. It was only a rumour. There always have been rumours, and rumours grow, and so this, letter was, this chapter was there to put the record straight. I think it's largely there, this glorious PS, to remind us that once Christ has risen from the dead, he's always alive, my famous four words, after Easter. Always Easter. It's true. And this is a reminder that Jesus continues to meet. You'll see in verse 14, this was now the third time Jesus appeared. If you're accurate, you say, surely, more than the third time. But it was the third time he appeared to the whole lot of disciples. He appeared to individuals. Indeed, we have a record in 1 Corinthians 15 of various individuals. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 15 was written before John 20? And so that was the first account of all the various resurrection appearances. And they're there as facts to help us believe. And of course it's there to remind us that you can have a great action replay. That's why I had Luke 5 read, as well as uh, John 21. You saw the comparison between those two moments. We'll come back to that in a moment. Is it true in verse 3 that Simon Peter was disillusioned? Was he really going back fishing, giving up his discipleship? Well, I'm not sure that was true. All I do know is Peter was always a leader. And Peter was always active. And what do you do? Yes, he'd met the risen Jesus, but, but it wasn't quite the same, was it? And he's going back fishing. He always takes the lead. Whatever he does, he takes the lead. You'll notice later on. When John recognizes verse 7, it's the Lord, it's Peter who jumps into the sea to meet him. I've always found verse 7 a problem. 
why on earth did Peter put on his clothes to jump into the water? I would have thought you'd take them off to jump in. Should I ever jump into any water, it's very unlikely. Uh, I would take my clothes off, but there you are, that's a, a subject. But he leapt into the water. He always takes the lead. That is Peter. Please pray that we'll have more leaders. You'll see more of that during this sermon because it's a very important need in the church today. Peter may not always have led right, but he, he was always in the lead and we need more who have that kind of courage. You know that traditionally this Sunday is known as Low Sunday. There are good historical reasons for it. It's not to do with the size of the congregation. It goes back into all kinds of history. But it's become a kind of synonym. It's great to see this congregation. And it was equally good at 9.15, so it isn't obviously Low Sunday here. But it is a reminder to us that when we move beyond Easter, the truths remain in us the same and yet different. We're going to see an action replay. They go back. And it's going to happen again, and yet different. You saw in Luke 5, the miracle happened in the same place. The same miracle happened. Same people. If you watch sporting events, you, 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 you're used to watching action replays on telly. Now, you see, yesterday we had, a, we had a wonderful goal at Hillsborough. Sheffield Wednesday's goal at Hillsborough yesterday was, was superb. And I wanted to have an action replay from every angle. But you just saw it once, but it was worth watching once. But the action replay is the kind of thing you, you get to see it all over again. And when Peter went back to that lakeside, he thought, I've been here before, and yet different. I want to suggest to you that these verses tell us that things are the same but different for the men, and for the miracle, and for the message. My three M's for this morning. Uh, it was the same for the men. The place and the people... Where was the place in verse 1? It was back to Galilee. That was an attempt to go back to where it had happened before. Some months ago I was preaching this pulpit, one of my occasional uh, kindly invited back to preach. And uh, I was preaching a, a gentle, young gentleman in the congregation. I, uh, we met afterwards. And he had come back here particularly on that day because it had been, I forget how many years, 20 I think, since he would actually after a very dramatic conversion, had a dramatic conversion, and this is where it all happened. And he wanted to be back where it had happened, just to say thank you. And it was one of the strange providences of God that I was preaching that day, very unlikely, but I was, and, and that made it even more important to him because it, was, it brought it back. There is a place to go back in order that we might find renewal. The, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, would go back to the place where they'd first cast anchorage. So back to Galilee. But it's more than that, you see. They'd gone back there because Jesus told them to. After the resurrection in Matthew 28, it says, they went back to the, to the mountain where he had appointed them. They went back to Galilee. They went back to the place of his appointment. And it was significant. Galilee was up north. Well, you know I'm a great believer of what happens up north. But it was more important to them because Galilee was on the edge of the world. Isaiah 9, chapter 1 calls it Galilee of the Gentiles. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light, the verse we read at Christmas. And the people that walked in darkness, literally in Isaiah 9, were the people who lived in Galilee, always being invaded, the enemy always coming in. And then the Saviour came and lived in Galilee. So they were back to the place of God's appointment, the ideal place to launch into the deep, not now for fish in the sea, but for fish for the kingdom, the great commission, that remarkable commission to a handful of disciples, make 
disciples of all nations. Never cease to wonder. You think of the millions now who believe in Jesus. It all began back there in Galilee with a handful of men who haven't done very well before who are now being prepared. There's the place. What about the people? Well, don't you find verse 2 a remarkable gathering of people? One of these lovely touches of history. It's a, I did study history a long time ago. But one of the things about studying history, it's always the most unusual things that are likely to be true. I mean, why on earth, if you're making up the story, would you have made, in chapter 20 of John, Mary Magdalene, the first person to meet the risen Jesus? wasn't a very good climax, was it? You could write a story, make it Mary, the mother of Jesus. Peter, John, Mary, Magdalene, who's she? We know nothing about her, really, except that seven demons are cast out of her. And why was she the first person? Because she was the first person. And here in chapter 21, you get a, a, an unusual group of people. Just look at them. Not the obvious ones. I mean, for example, where's Andrew? Simon Peter's there. Andrew's nearly always there, but not this time. The... The sons of Zebedee, always remember, John never calls himself John in his letter, so it's always the sons of Zebedee. And James and John were there. Now, James and John? Do you remember what happened to James and John just a, a few weeks, weeks before this? They said to Jesus, Master, could we have the right and the left when you come into your kingdom? Please? And then, not long afterwards, they saw the only time Jesus was called a king. The only time he came into the kingdom by acclaim, they saw a note and said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And then they looked who was on his right and who was on his left. And they thought, dear me, that's not what we meant. But you see, that's the Jesus we have to serve. But now they were meeting the risen Jesus, James and John. Or what about Nathaniel? It's odd that he's there, isn't it? Who would expect Nathaniel? He's disappeared after chapter 1. But he comes back again because he was there. And what did Jesus say to, to Nathaniel in John 1, 51, the only time he spoke to him, re recorded in Scripture? You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And there had been an angel on Easter Day, sitting there, guarding the tomb of the Son of Man who died and was now risen. He was there. And Thomas? Well, you might expect Thomas to be there, because after all, he had... Not been there on Easter Day, but the following week, it was on low Sunday at Easter that Thomas met Jesus. My Lord and my God, he cried. So it was good that he was there. Thomas, in John's Gospel, speaks three times and he's always a glorious pessimist. You read them sometimes. Thomas was a pessimist by nature, but now something's happened. He's enthused and he's there. But most of all, Peter was there. Same Peter? Not really. You see, way back in Luke chapter 5, when we read that story, the Peter who followed Jesus, the Peter who saw that remarkable thing happen, was a youthful enthusiast following a great preacher. Who wouldn't have followed Jesus? And if you're honest, who wouldn't have given up fishing to follow Jesus? Well, come on. Much more exciting. This is a life. But three years later, it was all rather different. The one he'd followed had gone to a cross. He'd been hounded by the religious authorities. And now and Peter had let him down badly. I'll never let you down. And he denied Jesus three times. And yet, Jesus still wanted him. We'll see that tonight very much. And Peter's there. He's very, very different. 
I guess there are some people here this service this morning who look back to when you first decided to follow Jesus. Some years ago, perhaps. And it was all then sort of exciting and enthusiastic. Uh, of course, life's a bit tougher now. We've learned a bit about life. We've had the ups and downs, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and all the rest. And it isn't easy following Jesus. But he comes again and says, follow me. The one who has been to the cross and is now risen. And it ought to be even more wonderful to follow the risen Jesus. Well, that's Peter. He's there. And Jesus, well, he's of course there. Is he the same? Well, he is and yet he's different. You see, you notice in verse 4, he's there standing on the shore. The stranger on the shore. There he is. And the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. And even when he called out that first, friends, haven't you any fish? The actual word friends is a rather nice word. It actually means lads. It was like that. The lads. That's what it means. Lads, have you any fish? And I think the answer of the disciples was a marvellous answer. That simple word, no. Can you imagine what lay behind that? If, you, if you've been fishing for ages and caught nothing, and somebody asks you, have you caught anything? Well, you, you might say rather more than no uh, to that sort of person. Uh, no. Wait for it. But you see, they hadn't recognised who he was until he said, verse 6, throw your net, you'll find some. And they brought in a large number of fish. Then the disciple, whom Jesus loved, John, said, it's the Lord. He recognised, before Peter did. Interesting. So he, the stranger on the shore was different. They didn't recognize him. I mean, have you noticed, in chapter 20, just glance back to chapter 20, same page in my Bible, back to chapter 20, when Mary Magdalene first met Jesus. In verse 14 of chapter 20, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there. She literally looked him in the eye. She didn't realize it was Jesus. She thought it was the gardener. Don't you find that extraordinary? Mary Magdalene, who loved him, who'd been with him, and she looked him in the eye, and she didn't recognize him. She thought he was a gardener. Well, partly because she didn't expect it. Partly she was deeply moved. But you see, he was different. It was the same. He was the same, clearly, in that chapter. He ate fish in front of them. But he was different. He looked different. And you and I are actually being called to serve Jesus the same Jesus, but different. You see, it is, I, um, years ago when I was a rector in Edinburgh, I used to visit a, a dear old lady. Mind you, I, was, I was thinking, I sat at 9.15, I called her a dear old lady. I realized she was probably younger then than I am now. So if she was a dear old lady, I'm a dear old man. But anyway, the dear old lady I used to, I visit, used to visit, and she, always, she got to the stage of saying the same things every time I went. You know, it does happen. I'm sure it'll happen to me fairly soon. Uh, you actually start saying the same things. And one thing she always said, Rector, oh, I do wish I'd lived when Jesus was alive. It must have been so much easier to be a Christian then. And I put it straight. Went around about a month later, same question. I do think I, it was much easier to be... I thought, right. Not worth arguing, so I left her to... But I was right, and she was wrong. It wasn't easier. When Jesus was alive, he came and went. And the disciples were a mixed bunch when he was alive. They were jockeying for position. They wanted authority. They didn't get on with each other. They let him down. And when he was risen and he'd gone, the Spirit had come, they were different. 
For you see, you and I don't have a Jesus we meet occasionally. The risen Jesus, by his Spirit, is always with us. I hope you know that experience. There are the men. What about the miracle? Well, it was the same, but different. Two things, the fish caught and the fellowship enjoyed. The fish caught. Now, when we read Luke chapter 5, did you spot, it's a very dramatic story. The first time it happened, what did happen? They'd fished all night, they'd caught nothing, and Jesus said, go out and you'll catch it. And uh, Peter thought, come on, Jesus. You're a great preacher and a wonderful man, but you're not a fisherman. We know if you're going to catch fish, you catch them at night, not in the morning. And then he says, nevertheless, chapter 5, verse 5 of Luke, Nevertheless, if you say so, I'll go. And I think I know Peter. And he was looking forward to the moment when he got back to Jesus and said, told you so, uh, we don't catch fish in the morning. And so he was terribly moved. Isn't that why in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, when it all happened and the fish had been brought in, he cast himself at the feet of Jesus saying, not Jesus, you're wonderful. No, no, no. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O oh Lord. Doesn't that surprise you? See, I would have thought it would have been excited, but I think I know. Just a few times in my ministry, I wish there'd been more, just a few times I've seen God at work and I felt frightened. I felt I wanted to get out. This is too much for me. Oh, I wish it had been more often, but just occasionally. So I think I understand why Peter recognised he was, it was beyond him. This man knew about fish as well. This man was the son of God, the thing we sang about with the kids earlier on. And uh, that's what happened the first time. And so here the second time round, when it began to happen, uh, this was the same miracle, the same miracle, fish being caught, but it was, as it were, a new challenge. In the first time, at the end of Luke 5, the call came, I'll make you fishers of men. And Peter went out in a sort of web. This time, as you'll see tonight, he's going to be called out to go out and serve for a lifetime. This is it. Forever. Fish caught. Oh, incidentally, I'd better get it out of the way. When they caught the fish, verse 11... There were 153. Now, I once preached on this at a conference, and I was sent a little booklet by the, somebody, because I'd said 153, a little booklet and about 10 pages of interpretations of 153. There were about 153 interpretations of 153, the mystical meaning of 153. Now, I'm going to tell you, you can now sit back. This is the final and ultimate interpretation, 153. It's quite straightforward. They counted them, and there were 153. <laughs> now, lest you think that's... Uh, let me just tell you, i just give you three. Here are three of the 150-odd versions of 153. One says this. It is the numerical, numerical equivalent of the words Simon Jonas. Okay. Uh, here's one, and I did check this out before. I, I was up early this morning, in spite of having a, a, an hour less in bed. I was up early this morning, and I, I counted them again just to make sure. If you count up the numbers 1 to 17, it adds up to 153. Now, please don't start, I assure you. It's true. And my question is, so what? <laughs> and here's the final one. The 100 speaks of the Greeks, the 50 speaks of the Jews, and you add 3 for the Trinity. Well, there you are. Take your pick. Can I just be sensible and say to you, 
I get worried when people play around with these trivia. The Bible isn't there with little silly trivia that some people may one day get the clue to, you know, the nonsense of Da Vinci Code and all that stuff. Of course, it's not true. Why do people want to believe that? Because, you see, it doesn't make any demands. Oh, I love all these little debates. But what, what about holy living? What about... Christian service. Oh, there are one or two chapters in the Bible like Daniel and Revelation where numbers are played around with but with a very obvious significance. You can't miss it when you read it, what it's talking about. No, 153 is not some mystical code. Just a reminder that when Peter was obedient there was a big catch of fish and the message he will never forget and the other thing about the, the, the miracle is the fellowship enjoyed. In the Luke version, Luke chapter 5, verse 7, they had to get their partners to help them to bring it in. And you get the same here in verse 8. The other disciples followed. And there was a lovely fellowship together. And they brought the fish in. And just notice how it goes on, the fellowship. In verse 11, uh, 12, they, they get up and have breakfast with Jesus, the stranger on the shore. And they have uh, bread and fish. And they knew it was the Lord. And he took the bread and gave it to them, verse 13. Didn't that bring all sorts of echoes, the same? Feeding of the 5,000, the upper room story, the first, the, instant, the beginning of the Lord's Supper. And there's lovely fellowship. And now it was going to be different. It wouldn't be the same. You see, you glance back to chapter 20, verse 17. When Mary Magdalene meets Jesus at last, and she hears him say, Mary, and she recognizes him, then she holds on to him. She clings. Jesus says, don't hold on to me, Mary. It's not going to be the same. You're not going to have my physical presence with you. You're moving into a new era of those who have not seen and yet have believed a more exciting era. But don't hold on. And when they went back to this fellowship, it was very wonderful, but it wasn't going to be the same. I want to say something about, very briefly, it's almost in brackets, but it is relevant. I think it's right, I should say it to you. You see, unity is, is so important in fellowship, in service, around the Lord. But never, ever unity at the expense of truth. I don't know how many of you read church newspapers, probably very few of you, and I don't blame you. But just a few weeks ago, Dr. Jim Packer, four years my senior, he was a PhD student at Oxford when I was a mere undergraduate, Dr. Jim Packer, one of the greatest Christian men of our age, who's written the most wonderful books, Knowing God Has Led Many People to Faith. Great man, great preacher. Just been, his license has been taken from him in a diocese in Canada because the church to which he belongs have moved away from the diocese because they perform same-sex marriages. They believe very little of historic Christianity and they've joined another diocese from the southern cone of South America. And so now Jim Packer, Dr. Jim Packer, and the great godly man is not now permitted to preach in that diocese. I just find that so frightening as to say to myself, you see, these aren't, it's not a matter of unity trying to coach your friends. These are our enemies. That diocese is an enemy to the truth. Jim Packer won't lose too much sleep that he's not allowed to preach in that diocese. The letter in the church newspaper last week, which from a friend of ours who put it rather bluntly, the lunatics have taken over the asylum. And that's what it sounds like. The lunatics have taken over the asylum. 
See, unity apart from truth is no unity. I am not united with those who deny Jesus, who go against all that the Bible teaches. I have no friendship with them at all. We are enemies. And thank God that people like Jim Packer still will go on preaching whatever. Now, I say that. You may say, well, that doesn't actually stem out of this passage, Philip. You're, you're pushing it in. In part, it does stem out of the parish. It's also my heart speaking to you. But you see, the fellowship they enjoyed was fellowship around the risen Jesus, loyal to the historic Jesus. It was a fellowship of people who were going out unitedly to win folk. Jim Packer is doing the opposite to what that diocese in Canada is doing. They're not working together. Unity in the gospel, please. Let's break down barriers that divide genuine believers. But never unity apart from truth. Yes, the fellowship they would enjoy, now they were with the risen Jesus, would be very wonderful. And I thank God, as I come to my last point briefly, I thank God that though this year is a year of division, there are two groups of Anglicans meeting in 2008 because of the division that's happening. That worries me in many ways, but it's inevitable. What I'm delighted to tell you, of course, is that all over our land, not least here in our church plants, God is manifestly at work. The risen Jesus is still active. And so alongside the miracle of fish being fought, caught and fellowship enjoyed is the story of John 21. You see, tonight when Andrew's preaching, you'll be, we'll be talking about the shepherding. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep. This first half of John 20 was about fishing. And every church must have both, fishermen and shepherds. We're here to reach out. Once a church ceases to evangelize, it might as well pack, it, pack up and shut its doors. On the other hand, it must always be caring for the sheep. There's a balance all the time of outreach and caring and nurturing. And thank God that's happening. And in the power of the Spirit... The shepherding and the fishing can be even more effective. Just listen, look at the message briefly. Same, but different. There's the person. Yes, he is still Jesus, risen from the dead. He is now seen as the Lord. And it's lovely. He's still at work. If you look at the end of Mark's Gospel, now I know Mark's Gospel's ending is a bit dubious, but the, the one that we normally have in Mark 16, 19 and 20, it says, at the time of the ascension, the Lord left them. And they went forth working everywhere, the Lord working with them. You got that? He's gone, but he's here. He's gone, but he's working. And uh, that is the joy of it. The finished work of Christ means that he's been risen, he's, he's dealt with our salvation, he's now risen, but he gives us a challenge to go on serving him. And as we do, he's with us. The person, the power, you see, this is a proof that, God, that the Lord is going on working. The risen Jesus still works. The miracle happened when he was alive. The miracle will happen now he's dead. And it's true when he said in John 14, 12, the works that I do, you will do. Greater works than these you will do. Greater works? What is a greater works? Just glance back to chapter 20, verse 22. When Jesus gives the power to the disciples, he breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive, they're not forgiven. Isn't that the greatest ministry of the church? To bring people to the place where they find forgiveness. And so Jesus said to the disciples, Greater works than these will you do. 
There were more people came into the kingdom on the day of Pentecost than the whole ministry of Jesus, you could argue. The greater works happened suddenly. He'd gone, but the Spirit had come, and thousands added to the kingdom. And that's why we rejoice. The power of the risen Lord Jesus is not changed. Acts 4.33, the apostles gave their witness to the resurrection, and great grace was upon them all. This church... Churches that believe in the message of the gospel who know the risen Jesus, then that's the promise. As we witness, his power will be evident, the person and the power, and finally the purpose. You see, the fishing was the purpose. This was the purpose here, to try to reach people with the good news of the gospel. Last weekend, Martin and I were in Torquay. It was snowing in Sheffield, and the sun was shining in all its brilliance on Torquay. Nobody had ever seen snow in Torquay, uh, and uh, it was a lovely weekend. Mind you, we'd, we'd rather be in Sheffield than Torquay, there's no doubt which we preferred to be in, but we were there. And I was doing a little series for an Easter conference in John 19, 20, and 21. I'm no fool, you see. I know when I've got to preach here on John 21, I can do it twice, you see. So I, 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 I spent uh, the, the, the weekend. And we started with John 19, the finished work of Christ, And we finished in John 21 with the unfinished work of Christ. And it's because the finished work of Christ is true that we go out into the unfinished task of taking the good news. The news by which alone people will come to new life. Same. Different. Wonderfully different. I'm so glad I live now. So glad I wasn't there in the days of Jesus. So much better to be a Christian now. But what a great challenge to go out. Would you please glance at your order of service before we go any further? I want to draw your attention to the last hymn. The organ springs to life at last. For the last hymn, we have an organ. And uh, oh, I love the piano. Please, no, 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 no disrespect. I love the piano, but we have an organ. And this great hymn, Facing a Task Unfinished. It's a lovely hymn. I remember the day as a young man, this was, this was a, a new hymn. Uh, we've got a lot of new hymns since then, thankfully. Please note that the task unfinished, the challenge it brings to us, the end of, chapter, uh, the end of verse 1, the solemn pledge we owe thee to go and make thee known. Verse 3, we bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. The early Christians, the day of the Reformation, I pray this morning using Barnabas' fun prayers of people who are dying for their faith at this very hour who give their lives. We won't have to do that. We just use our lives. And then those, that last verse, lines 5 and 6. I can never get away from lines 5 and 6. From cowardice, defend us. From lethargy, awake. I wait for some of our church leaders to dare to stand up and support Jim Packer, cowardice, defend us. We people are notoriously quiet when it comes to the big issues. And I believe in the world in which we live that one of the greatest enemies of the Christian church making an impact is we're frightened. Frightened of our peers, frightened of being unpopular, frightened of seeming intolerant. And so we keep our mouths shut. Tragically, the silent minority, the silent majority will probably be the death of the church. Cowardice, defend us. From lethargy away. Yes, it's good to serve the risen Lord Jesus, but don't really expect, I'm tired, I have a, lot, I have a busy program, don't expect me to do too much. 
And the world will not be one until we have courage and we're prepared to, to pull the stops out and serve him. I have noticed that the enemy of souls never seems to get tired. The enemy of souls is not frightened to speak its mouth and his agents. God give us the grace to follow a risen Jesus who is alive forevermore. Let me pray and then we'll sing.